0: So you just got back from a gig, is that correct?
1: Yeah, I did uh, last night. But uh, I was in uh, Delhi, I guess is how you say it. Some people call it Delhi. Mm -hmm. Delhi, Ontario, uh, tobacco uh, area, down by um, Lake Erie, almost.
0: And this is with?
1: Fraser Daly playing uh, the Backstage Capitol Theatre. It's an old theatre that's been around for quite a while that they've... um, they got back up and running again. They run concert series there, and uh, and uh, it, it, this one was quite different actually. They they built it as the summer of '69, and they wanted us to come in and play. Uh, um, in the first sh- show, they wanted us to play songs from 1969, hmm. and uh, we handed out um, these envelopes that we have that have three requests on them. we put them around the table and people write in whatever they want. so they get to kind of program the band too so if people feel engaged right and then you know uh, in the second set we you know we open it up a little bit and do other things uh, you know, maybe a few of our own songs. The first time that we went there we we played. A lot of our own material off of our three records mm-hmm. and uh and threw some other things in there you know and some stunts and uh <laughs> and uh they enjoyed it so much they wanted us to come back f- for this and do this special sort of night where we're playing a lot more covers than we know you know we normally would in a in, right. a, in a theater so it was fun it was a challenge
0: and it how do you fun. feel about that how do I covers. feel about it? Yeah.
1: I think it's good to have a bit of a balance in what you're doing. If you mm-hmm. want to work all the time, um, I I like playing. You know the root space stuff, uh, our own material, uh, but I enjoy entertaining people. Like I like the interaction, and I like when people are laughing and having fun, and mm. and, uh, and that kind of thing. Um, I think playing covers. Sometimes as as lucrative as it can be, and it can keep you as a musician. Um, is better than digging ditches, and I've done lots of that back in the early '80s. I you know I'd be down digging ditches on a construction site, wishing that I was playing music and uh, that I liked. So, so to play covers, I think is good. I would I don't like to do it all the time. I think there needs to be a balance, sort of a. You know, yin-yang thing, it's like uh, do different things, keep your life interesting, mm-hmm. uh, make a living at it, and uh, you know that kind of thing. It's like recording. Uh, I don't want to do just one genre of music all the time because right. it would drive me crazy. And sometimes there's no way around that because that's what you get known for, so people come to you, you know, and, oh, I really want you to do what you did with that last guy. And I think, well, yeah, but that that makes it less special, you know? So I have very eclectic tastes in music and I like to record a lot of different kinds of music and I like to play a lot of different kinds of music, so... Well,
0: it's interesting about the covers because in my mind you were with almost the, the ultimate cover band which was Jeff Healy's band where you, you guys played a lot of cover tunes and, and made it your own.
1: Well, that was because Jeff had spent so much of his career, you know, playing his own music over and over and over again. And uh, he knew all of these songs from being a, a kid in, in school and with all the other blind kids. They would ju- He told me that they just would sit around listening to the radio and learn all the songs at the time, you know. I can remember being in Switzerland with him, and uh, and we're in the hotel room, we're listening to my... <clears throat> my tape machine that I had. Mm-hmm. That's how long ago it was. And uh, Wichita Lineman came on by Glenn Campbell. And Jeff picks up my guitar and just starts playing the whole thing. Like, just, you know, really knew it, knew the, you know, the solos on certain songs that were coming up. and I said, man, that's amazing. Like, you can remember all that. He goes, oh, man, this is all we did. Like, he loved playing covers. Mm-hmm. But he never had much of a chance to do it, even though he wasn't really a writer he would he on his records he would do covers but right. but then once you get the reality is is that when you get on the road people want to hear those ones your versions of those mm-hmm. hits right so it's a different situation when you're in <clears throat> like in a band with uh, with well Dave Murphy was the the uh, musical director of that band right. for a, bu- a bunch of years when I was in the Healy band. And he uh, he knew a lot of material, so that was a good challenge for for Jeff. It was like yo, you know that one? Let's do it. Let's do it. So the the repertoire expanded like immensely when Dave came into the band because it gave Jeff, you know, the chance to play all sorts of songs. I mean, we'd be in front of fifty thousand people in Denmark, and you know he would. He used to get uh, Mike, or sorry, he used to get uh, Dave Murphy and myself to sing some songs in the, in the set, you know. Right. These people are here to hear Jeff, right? So we're kind of aware of that. <laughs> when we first started doing this, and Jeff would, and we were at a blues festival, and Jeff would turn to me and go, Alex, sing Long Black Veil, would you? <laughs> by, by Lefty Frizzell, and it's this whole country song about, you know, uh, hanging. And uh, I'm thinking... Uh, Okay, uh, and I, but it, it taught me something about him because he and about myself too, is that if you're put on a spot like that, uh, you better give it your all like and sing it like it's your last days on earth because that's the only way you're gonna win over anybody that's especially a like a blues crowd like mm-hmm. that. And uh, so I mean that was good advice from him. he He just had done everything that he needed to do as far as, uh, you know, in the record business and all of that? That he was, he was just wanted to just do what he wanted now, right. and and the, the audience, they eventually, if they didn't like it at first, they just sort of come along. Eventually, going, hey man, we're getting to see this guy pouring his heart out here. It doesn't matter what he whether he's playing Flight of the Bumblebee or Smoke on the Water, right? So. <laughs>
0: But that's the thing, right? He was a very unique person in that. One, in the way that he featured the band as if it was a band as opposed to yeah. a backup band. And two, the way that he would just call out a song that you guys have never played before in front of ten thousand people and then there you are, kinda yeah. put on the spot.
1: Well you so, get used to that after a while. There's it's funny that uh when you know, if we're talking covers like that, like with Fraser Daly, like Mike Daly is a Probably knows more songs than anyone that I've ever.
0: He's a musicologist, uh, is that correct? Yeah, and yeah. that's why. I mean,
1: yeah. he's he knows more songs than anyone I think I've ever played with.
0: Which is quite crazy because Jeff knew impressive. a lot of
1: songs. Well, when we do the request envelope thing, it's amazing because the all night we'll do we'll do you know a three hour gig, so you're playing for roughly two hours out of the night. He is, you know. I mean, I'm singing some of it, but it's mostly him. He's singing, uh, you know, songs that uh, like I, I think. Well, how the, how do you know this? Like, I mean, like, <laughs> well, of course, one th- thing.
0: Lyrics is a totally different well, thing, right? To know, yeah. About.
1: Well, there, there is a little cheating going on with that now with the the advent of the, uh, the, the, s- the smartphone is that you can by using Siri, yeah, like, you know, go, uh, you know like just talk into your phone and get the lyrics um, uh, for a song quickly, if, if we don't know the, all right. the lyrics, just because the way, and so it pops up very fast and you, you know, bang, he's got it on a little tray there and he can scroll through as he's singing and, and get that. So it's not all that we know every song. Right. It's just that we, we have access to everything if we feel like playing it. Like it's, it's the thing where you grew up listening to material like from my side of it, mm-hmm. like I'll know the song if he knows the song. Like if he's gonna, if he's got the lyrics there, then it'll come back to me. And then what I don't know, I can read from him, wh- whether it be the his guitar changes or, or you know, uh, even lyrics. Well, Danny Marks and I used to do this routine that he would speak. He could say anything, and I could say exactly the same thing as he's saying as he's saying it, uh, just a split second behind. Because and plus through word association, so we used to do a comedy routine that went over quite well with that, and it was kind of funny because he'd always try and change it to to throw me off, but I could say the same thing. It's not being psychic; it's just a it's just a routine. I I, I caught it off of. Um, the Tonight Show with uh, Ed McMahon used to do that to mm-hmm. uh, to uh, Johnny Carson. So it, it works the same way with harmony too. So if someone is singing harmony, then I can, or someone is singing lead, I can sing harmony. Two of them usually getting most of the words correct. <laughs> At least I think I do, anyway.
0: So I should introduce you. I'm talking to Alec Fraser, the one half of Fraser Daily, and. Um, a great bass player, guitar player, singer, songwriter and also a producer of many records. So thanks for coming in and allowing us to come here and chat with you about your life. Tell me how you first got into music.
1: Um well, I I got into it through my father. <clears throat> Mostly as far as learning learning how to play, you know, it's he showed me a few chords when I was like 6 years old on a guitar and mm-hmm. Um, I'd say that, but the influence came from me back in Glasgow, Scotland, uh, laying in bed at night and listening to all my merchant Navy, uh, uncles home on leave and stuff singing and the top of their lungs, uh, in the living room, like, you know, they all played guitar. They all sang, uh, sort of my aunts. They all sang. There were big families too. The Irish side of my family, uh, there was uh, sixteen. Wow. In it, you know? And so my dad was like more around f- uh, 14, 13 or fourteen. I can't remember. But um, the the Irish side would play a lot, and you know they'd be home on leave, so they just wanted to party and have fun. So I'd hear all these songs while I was in bed thinking, and I wasn't allowed to be out there. You know? So
0: what kind of songs are we talking about?
1: What songs? Uh, yeah. Well, they brought back, we had like, you know, cupboards full of 78s that they would bring back and, uh, and also reel-to-reel tapes that they would tape radio shows from different parts of the world, but mostly in the States. So they were they were heavy on the uh, older country and western. They loved that stuff. So Jimmy Rogers and Hank Williams and mm-hmm. all of that, you know, like the first song I ever learned was Jambalaya because it had two really? chords on it. And um, uh, also, uh, you know, Louis Jordan, mm-hmm. and uh, and rock and roll records, not Bebop Palula, and those those kind of things. Uh, they would play, you know, the music of the times. I think a lot of people in Scotland saw country and western as being a music that they sent overseas, and then they. It came back to them, you know. They, there was mm-hmm. there's a there's a serious connection there. Uh, plus, it was Glasgow being a working class city. Um, they, you know, they liked the uh, tended to connect more to uh, you know uh, working class songs. You know, and country and right. western was definitely about that drinking, cheating, all that stuff. You know, back then it was anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I got a, a good influence from. From um from the music they brought, and then once I started playing, and especially when I came to Canada at eleven, I, I started taking playing guitar more serious, seriously. So uh, I started you know learning all of the songs of the time and even started to write some songs myself and that and I had a band by the time I was twelve. I had a band,
0: what were they uh, called?
1: Oh, what were we called? Yeah. Well, let me tell you. I'll, I'll tell you the little story quick. Okay. Here we go. This is, <laughs> I'm playing a church picnic, uh, and it was, uh, I was 12 years old, and I had a drummer and another guitar player. So it was two guitars and and uh, and drums, no bass, kind of like what Jerome God was doing mm-hmm. nowadays. So it was like um, playing our own songs, songs like Flying Fuzz and Stratus Nimbus, and <laughs> All these kind of things we were making up and Bangla Hell was a song I wrote that nobody believed I wrote. Um and so we uh we play in this picnic and uh, and the guitar player had had uh Rob Sacconi. he had he said, I found a name for our band. It's gonna be great. We're playing we're playing the church picnic, we've got it, you know, we're uh Catholics, you know. Uh we've we've got this great name. I looked it up in the dictionary, I said, Yeah, what is it? He goes. and He tells me. So I go. But he didn't bother to look at the pronunciation. So we get on stage in front of all these people at this church picnic, and I come out and I go, "Ladies and gentlemen, we are Armageddon." And was like, <laughs> "Armageddon." And uh, the the, uh, the priest walks right up to us with his you know his hand like over his mouth, and he goes, uh, "That's Armageddon." <laughs> So that's uh, that, was, that was the name of my band. Uh,
0: how religious were you?
1: How religious was this? I'll tell you. Uh, whew, that's a that's a big question. <laughs> um, I took it seriously, even though I was a bad little guy. Uh, you know, bad in the sense that you know, I'd, you know, just doing all the normal things that Glaswegian kids did back mm. when I was living there. You know, you know, you swear a lot and. Maybe steal an apple or whatever from the store. You know, just petty stuff, uh, venial sins, I guess you'd call them. Nothing mortal, venial. But um, in fact, one time I went to uh, uh to a, ch- a confession. Mm-hmm. You know, and I I mean I was I was bad, but I but I was you know willing to own up to it because I figured well this is how you get off and. Uh, <laughs> You know, so clean the slate I, clean. You know, clean the slate <laughs> clean. Yes, and I, so I—I uh, I think I was about maybe eight years old. I go in, and our, our school decided to have a, a bulk confessional one day with the class. So they bring them all down to the to the uh, to the, the church, but we weren't using the confession box. You know, it's one thing to be in you know in the box for yeah. it, even though you know the priest knows who you are by your voice. <laughs> You can't really see it because yeah, yeah. he's got that little graded thing that you're looking through. So it, was, it made it a little bit easier to own up to stuff, you know. So, um, so anyway, this at this time, this Irish priest was down at the bottom of, near the altar and in the pews, and we we're all sitting at the back of the church, going, "I don't like this at all." We got <laughs> He's looking right at us. What are we gonna do? He "Lie." Okay, well, whatever. We go. Oh, no, I don't know. Think I can lie? I mean, God's gonna know. So so in my turn to go down, I sit in front of him, and he goes, uh, bless me, Father, for I have sinned, blah, blah, blah. It's been like, you know, about three hours since my last confession, (laughs) something (laughs) like that. Anyway, he goes, uh, what have you got to tell me? And I said, uh, well, you know, I... I swore seven times. I used to have to try and count them, too, which was another thing which I think is impossible. Trying to count them how many times you said the F word in Glasgow is ridiculous. So when I used to go, okay, I swore seven times, and I stole twice, you know, I, uh, I did this and that and this, and he goes, you little pagan. <laughs> and I was, like, horrified. I said, you called me a pagan. This is one of the worst things you could be called. He says... Here, do your, you know, Hail Mary's and your our fathers over there, and you go. So I was very embarrassed by that. Uh, I go home and I tell. I made the mistake of telling my dad. <laughs> I said, I said, I'm not going to confession anymore. I'm done with this whole confession thing. He goes, Why is that? I said, uh, Well, I told the priest, you know, a few things. He goes, What did you tell him? And I said, Well, I told him I swore seven times. I told him I just <laughs> reveled up, and then he cuffed me in the head. and He goes, You go. And I thought, All right. I don't like this, <laughs> so, but, and I continued to to go to church when I came to Canada, for for until I was of age where I was able to make my own decisions, you know. And I am still a spiritual person in many ways, you know. What was Meaning, coming- I talk to myself a lot, but I, but I, I don't. I'm not affiliated with anyone organized religion and right? right. although i do respect uh a lot of what uh on a street level what a lot of them do for the communities i like that
0: mm-hmm. know, so. what was um coming to canada like for you
1: it was uh was it an easy it was adjustment? something i didn't want to do because i was 11 i was leaving the only life that i knew all uh. my friends all my cousins and uh i had uh like I had to my dad had to sort of negotiate with me in order to sort of soften the blow. Because um, I had no choice, I had to come. Right. Um so he said, What can I do to, you know, make this a bit easier for you? So this is nineteen sixty seven. Uh I said, Well, I want a pair of hipster pants. <laughs> uh Because I'd been wearing long pants my entire life. Or sorry, short pants my entire life. And I finally, I'm 11. I'm sick of these Angus Young (laughs) schoolboy outfit, these pants here. And uh, I want long pants. I want those hipsters, the ones that come up to your, that's what they called them, you know, right up to your hip there. And uh, so he goes, all right, then I'll get you those. And I said, I want my own tape machine because he would never let me touch his gear right i was never allowed to touch his his tape machine and record stuff so i said i want my own like a reel-to-reel so when i came i arrived he had those things for me he had my reel-to-reel which is basically what started me at that age off on recording he bought me a cassette deck too like a little one Mm -hmm. so i'd use that for interviewing uh, different people and stuff
0: so what was the application? It was mainly interviewing friends and stuff. No, I, would,
1: I I would do stuff for school stuff. I went to Chum AM one time and FM and re- interviewed uh, uh, J Michael Wilson, huh. the the DJ. He was very nice actually. He gave me some money after I left too, which I thought would made him even nicer. Uh, <laughs> How did that I think, happen? I don't know. He just <laughs> kind of took to me. He wanted he wanted me to sort of. He says and oh, I. He kept grabbing my mic all the time, which was kind of funny. I said, hey, what are you doing next? Go grab my mic. He goes, grab my mic, and he put it up. and goes, and uh, if there's any other young uh, kids out there that want to get involved in the uh, uh, this kind of DJ thing, uh, you can enroll in this uh, Columbia School of the Arts. <laughs> I'm going, Why is he talking like that all the time? Right? But it was fun. The other thing that was funny, was too, is when I got those hipster pants when I got here, I... Uh, it was like May, you know, and it was already starting to get warm. Like, we we don't uh, experience, like, in Glasgow, you don't experience the kind of humidity and heat and stuff mm-hmm. like that. You, you right. do here. At least they didn't when I was living there in the 50s and 60s. So I get here. These hipster pants I got are corduroy. Or not corduroy, they're uh, tweed. So I'm wearing tweed hipster pants in the summer, so I couldn't really wear them very long can remember like it being a horrible experience that I just wanted to, can I have my shorts back you know it's like uh, anyway That's cool. I, I hope I've answered your question, <laughs>
0: <laughs> so did you use the the tape recorder to record music at this point or yeah,
1: Yeah. I was recording everything I had a like i had my like i said I had my own little bands mm-hmm. back then and and uh so we'd always record those things. It was one time we're up in the and, and Rob Ciccone too. He had he had a, a tape machine too, you know. So we used to uh, put two of them together at times and and multi track. Right. And uh, we figured out how to do that. In fact, I think he figured out how to do it. So I can't take credit for that. But it was a lot of fun. I can remember being in the attic of uh, the drummer's house, and we were ma- we had made you know we didn't have a. PA so we were and we didn't have microphones so we were building all of our own stuff because I was taking electronic lessons at the time from one of my father's friends in return for me teaching uh his son how to play guitar he would give me Mm -hmm. electronic lessons and he taught me one thing uh which was that a speaker and a microphone are pretty much the exact same thing you can use a microphone as a speaker and you can use a speaker as a microphone so I thought well that ought to be easy. So I go out with my screwdriver on garbage day and I <laughs> yank out every speaker I can find and we put them on the... We had Our first mic stands were uh, were um, broom handles. We taped the speaker onto the top of it and stick it into like uh, the rims of a car. So these were, you know, you'd have your face right into this speaker and it was very bassy, but, uh, but you can get volume out of it. So we'd sing through an amp with that and it would be up there playing away. So... Uh yes, we play, and I can remember a time where we were writing our own songs, and and I I, I wrote a song called I Ain't Got No Time, mm-hmm. and it lasted about thirty minutes, <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't realize that it was too long until I came downstairs and the drummer's mother uh, said, uh, sounds like you got a lot of time to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I thought I guess I should edit that down. Hey, it's too much of an FM version. <laughs> uh, yeah, but we had a lot of fun back then. It was it was great to to like those early days of like where um, you're so into doing what you're doing that and everybody around you is you're all the same level. You're all hungry. You know, someone doesn't have a you know nowadays you can have someone who is. Doing it for different reasons than you are, you know, mm-hmm. like it's like maybe has makes more money or has you know a, a higher job or whatever and that kind of thing. It doesn't isn't, it, they're not on the same level, you know, when you're right. playing at times, so it, it can affect bands considerably. Uh, but back then, everybody was the same, we're all doing it for the same reasons, playing fun, you know, and you know, uh, I never ever had any sort of idea in my head. That I was going to become super famous and rich, you know. Right. apparently,
0: I was right. But, I, <laughs> it's like, but you have been doing but it. I did it most of your life.
1: Yeah, and I still really enjoy it. Uh, it's it's sometimes it's second nature for me for the playing part. But I look to the the end of the day as being the high point of the day for me. If I'm playing in a club, right, mm-hmm. or you know, I'm doing a show. It's I wait all day for that. And it's it still the most important thing that I do, and I don't want to stop it. I'm always saying I'll never retire, not willfully anyway, uh, that, that I need to keep playing. And, you know, and I've watched people who do retire or go for a bit of an easy life, easier life as they get older because they're worn out or whatever the reasons are, uh, that, you know... I looked at my father, like for instance, he retired and did nothing, and then he, he you know, he, he passed away, uh, because he didn't have that same drive and that same, you know, he wasn't keeping things going, even right. a part time job or, or hobby or interest or something like that. Uh, whereas my mother, on the other hand, worked. She's 80, 84 now. So oh, I'm not supposed to say that. <laughs> um, but anyway, she, she probably won't listen to this. But so. she would. She stopped working uh, like just last year. Wow. Like she didn't want to stop, and she's as fit as a fiddle. I don't know why they say that. I don't know if fiddles are fit, but anyway, she is fit. She's still running around. She's doing all sorts of things, and uh, and uh, much better for it too. You know, mm-hmm. so I take those lessons. I mean, I I like to live a long time, but I want to be doing what it is that I like to do.
0: Did you ever question music? Did you, was it ever difficult?
1: Did, did I ever question music? Yeah, I mean, oh, was, was playing yeah, ever difficult? Definitely. Or? Oh, um...
0: Or did you ever think about quitting?
1: Well, I questioned the music business. Right. And there were times where I, I had to, uh, like in the 80s, you know, after playing with David Wilcox and that, I, I had a bit of a, uh, a downturn. I had two kids. I was living in Port Credit. And... Um, and I had to uh, go and and take, as well as being a musician, I had to go take a day job in order to survive,
0: right.
1: and uh, and so I was working as a you know a, a carpenter, uh, doing a lot of carpentry. Uh, uh, for the historical society, refurbishing old places that was interesting. I didn't mind that, mm-hmm. but um, it took away, like the more you do during the day, it takes away from you. The desire to play, to, uh, yeah. to work at nighttime, right? So your focus kind of gets off, you know. And um, but it was out of necessity, and I did a lot of odd jobs around that that time till I got myself back on my feet again. To just to just go, you know, playing's pretty good. <laughs> like I mean, it's like yeah. You know, so I it was always the business side of it to me. It was never that I got sick of the music, like, I I don't get tired of music unless I'm playing only one style of music all the time, Mm -hmm. because it's limiting for me. I can't can't just do one thing. I don't want to ever be a one-trick pony, you know, and uh, I don't want to wear the same songs down all the time. I'd like to be able to be in a position where I can play as many different songs as I can. Uh, to challenge myself and, and uh, so and, and I can go see some great bands and but if they're playing the same 30 40 songs over and over again, I can't go see them a right. lot after that because I, I figure well I've seen that and you're not progressing. So I need, I need to hear uh, I need to hear it as well as play it.
0: I need to be hearing uh, it moving forward. Right. Yep. So, so, you obviously had an interest in recording from your from your tape recorders, but how did you f- get into re- recording seriously and starting off Liquid? Was there something before Liquid Studios?
1: Well, there was that I that I had been doing for a number of years. i had been doing mobile recording, mm-hmm. and I really liked that. Like before, I had Liquid, like Liquid Toronto. I had like my own studio with big, with big Ben Richardson, uh,
0: mm-hmm. who
1: he basically, he, he instigated that whole thing. But I'll tell you that in a minute. Uh, it, uh before that it was, um, like being on a movie set. I love the challenge of going into someone's house or, a, or a church basement or some location different every single time. And, uh, and going, well, where are we going to put the guitar amp? Or where are we going to mic it here? You know, it was always like, oh, yeah, there's a cupboard there. Or oh, there's a hallway. We can use that as a reverb uh, or an echo chamber. Uh, you know, like that kind of thing. Like, so it would always be a real challenge. and the, And the bands would be recording, you know, they'd be digging it because it'd be a different situation for them. They weren't just walking into a studio that had the same sound. Well, the same mic technique all the time. This is how we mic the drums. This is our sound. Not that there's anything wrong with that, mm-hmm. you know, because Motown and a lot of other rec- uh, great studios got away with that. I'm saying that just if I'm doing a live off the floor thing, I think the environment has a lot to do with pulling out different uh, different energies from from the musicians and the artists themselves. So I found that to be a lot of fun like like a movie a different movie location. It's the same kind of thing with recording. I look at recording like like you know creating a film too. It's, it's very, very similar. and the challenges are different each time. but those what you what you go through a lot of times makes it on to the recording. So
0: what's the greatest thing you learned about that process of recording
1: like a recording? Yeah Well, I don't know. I've never really thought of that question before. Can I get back to you in about <laughs> sure. five years? I, the greatest thing okay what okay, what's, a, that's what's something you learned that you thought wow well, this
0: this is a good thing to know
1: well I, a good thing to know all right i I mean I started out recording live you know just everybody at the same time. they call it live off the floor mm-hmm. right? and i uh I liked that. But when I could discover that I could overdub, I really liked that too because it opened it up for me. Especially when there was less musicians, it would be easy to, uh, um, you know, make something sound more produced. Okay. You know, so, so. But then I fell into this thing later on, um, where when I got uh, the studio, like Big Ben Richardson at- approached me and said. Hey Alec, uh, I really like these records that you've been making, and I've been wanting to, you know, get a studio space somewhere, you know, just for ourselves, kind of thing. And uh you're the guy that I would like to do it. Let's put all our gear together and stuff, and and at that time, I was I was okay financially, but Ben was doing quite well, and you see, he just threw all his money into getting this place. I found a location which was underneath underneath Pizza Gigi, mm-hmm. and. uh on Harvard Street there it was an old blues can that I went to once I think but I it, and it was still sitting there I thought that would be a cool place to turn into a studio so we went there and uh I along with uh you know Joel McCloud a few friends and that we we put together I designed all the 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 rooms and the and everything and we had this long beautiful uh, Terrazzo floored hallway that I used as an echo chamber, so it had beautiful natural uh, uh, ambience that I could run a mic back and forth at different different parts of the hallway to get tighter or longer reverbs, and it, it sounded fantastic in there, and people really liked it. So uh, I did a lot of live off the floor recordings there because I th- I thought I just want to record the guys that aren't that. Or know who they are, or mm-hmm. very confident with themselves, right? That they they have no problem singing and playing lead at the same time, and they don't worry about safety nets like oh well, I'm, and and don't take forever to do a recording. Like okay, we're doing the beds today, and uh, and then you know, and then uh, you know we're gonna add the guitar next, and then we're gonna bring the horns in, and then I'm gonna sing it, and then we're gonna do this, and it's like you know it's tedious. <laughs> I just I just like you know why don't we just get them all in there at the same time? And this isn't a new idea, but at that time, it wasn't done very much. So it attracted a lot of blues players, because blues players can play like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm talking the guys like... The top tier. Uh, like the top tier guys, like Mel Brown and Snooky Pryor and Willie Big Eyes Smith. And and I was getting lots of people from the States through Electrify Records, because Andrew Galloway eventually, you know, noticed what it was that it was doing, and he started bringing them in. And uh, so I mean, when Willie Big Eye Smith got there, it was kind of funny. The first time, actually, the first time I met him was on stage at Silver Dollar. I never, you know, I never met him before. And we, and we, when we did that recording, mm-hmm. that first album. But he came in. Andrew Kempa brought him in to, to play. And as he's opening up, you know, his drums and everything, getting them out. He's leaning over, and uh, Andrew Kempa said to him, you know, hey. Uh, Willie, I know this place looks kind of funky because it was, you know, kind of funky. He goes, but he, he gets a, you know, it, 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 I think you'll like it. And Willie just turns to him and goes, that don't mean shit. He says, <laughs> it's what it sounds like that matters, right? And there's a the guy that, uh, I mean, he on playback after the the first take, he's standing there with his arms yep. folded and he go, he's shaking his head. He's go, like up and down. He's going, he's nodding. He's going, this place reminds me of chess. Only it's got better sound. And I was thinking, I said, "You know, that's the best endorsement I've had yet." Because yeah. <laughs> it's kind of what I was want. I was yeah. going for, and and so I, I so you I, I like that energy of live off the floor. I like the fact when people come in, they're confident of doing takes. You can do multiple takes of songs if you like. Mm-hmm. There was nothing I couldn't ever fix in a live. I never ran up a against a problem of, uh, uh, of something I couldn't fix in a vocal or something like that, doing it live off the floor with all the other instruments in there. I figured out all sorts of ways of doing it, just from doing it. And, uh, and, and this was on to, to digital tape. This was before uh, we had uh, any, um, any computers, which is really right. easy to do on now. But I like that energy. I mean, I just heard the new Rolling Stones record and I, I'm loving what I'm hearing. I'm thinking, wow, these guys have got all that ambient sound. First th- time it came on, and I heard it, I thought, well, it sounds just like my old studio. Like they're back to where they started, a full circle. Right. Um,
0: live off and, the floor.
1: Yeah, live off yeah. the floor is good. I mean, they, who knows? They may have, you know, the, you can do overdubs afterwards. On oh, oh, they said they but the didn't. The I- initial, <laughs> they did they really? Because yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. And I, I uh, see. I, I really respect that. I think that that's that's a sort of a level of musicianship that, that of confidence and and like I said, knowing who you are, like Mel Brown, when I recorded him and he heard his voice back. You know, most people are critical about their own voices. You mm-hmm. know, to some because it's you, right? So yeah. it's hard to be objective of yourself, right? But but um, when he's hearing it back and Mel's just going, it sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought, yeah, that's what you're supposed to sound like. You're supposed to sound like yourself. So, yeah, I, I think that the live off the floor thing is is has been a. It's not the only way to record, but it's what what I really enjoy. I mean, I love, uh, you know, doing the overdub stuff and that for demoing a song. If I'm gonna, you know, maybe play something to to Mike and. Uh, and then we're going to come in and record it you know you got to you got to sort of give him something although sometimes you don't like a lot of uh, the new Fraser daily record um every track on that record is that I sang and what he sang is us singing and playing our instruments at the same time right. so um, you know I, if I played the brush bass which is my upright bass with the snare drum attached mm-hmm. I'm playing that and I'm singing and there's no editing on it it's just us uh you know mike's playing guitar and and singing too there's no editing it's just what we sound like and uh only in a you know in a in a in a good sounding studio so that's the difference of it being live in front of an audience is that i can actually make it sound even better than what we we do but the performance is live and that's what's important about it so yeah i guess i'm all about that you know you
0: know, I had the privilege of watching you work a number of times with the Electrified Recordings. And the thing I always remember is a couple of things. Is One, the way you deal with the musicians and, and, and the way that you would make them feel at home as much as you possibly can. I, and I'd never witnessed a situation where things got awkward. Um, but the other thing is the way you would listen to the tunes. So as soon as they would do something or play a track, you would pick off anything that sounded abnormal to you, even though maybe other people didn't hear that. Tell me about that the training that you have in your ear that, that picks off that little bass note that was wrong, or just, you know what I mean? Like, I, w- I was always amazed at how you would just say, oh, you know what, that was good, but the second verse, the bass line was off, or something.
1: Yeah, well, uh, because in producing, you're, or you're, you're hearing the whole thing. Not the individual. I mean, you are hearing the individual, uh, but you're more so. You're hearing the whole, the Mm -hmm. whole thing. You're hearing everybody, how it's melding. And when anyone with an ear in music can tell when something goes kind of wonky in a spot, right, or or someone's gasping for air or whatever, right. Especially if they fall on the floor during the take. But um, you know that's a dead giveaway. But um, (laughs) but yeah, you 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 just have your ears up. That's what I what I say. So my ears are generally always up, and there's times when I miss things, but um, but yeah, I just try and keep that <clears throat> that happening, and hopefully someone else notices it too. But uh, you go and play back, and not to not to. Uh, uh, I wouldn't. That wouldn't be the first thing out of my mouth, if someone had just done a great take of a song, <laughs> right? And then we point to the what was wrong with it <laughs> no so i mean i don't do that i think that that's that's not a good trait in the producer i think what it is is it's better to to if you know you've got a good take you know it's to go wow i really like that you know and let's listen to it back you listen to it back and uh hopefully uh the person the artist, or w- whether it's uh, any one of the other musicians will hear exactly where, you know, that spot is, or maybe you played a duff note. You mm-hmm. know, and, uh, and if they don't notice it and everybody's going, yeah, it's great. It's great. It's great. And you say, well, yeah. Do you think we should fix that one little spot there? Like, you know, you have to be diplomatic mm-hmm. and then they go back and hear it. They go, yeah, yeah. Or they might actually say, you know, that doesn't bother me. I say, yeah, well, it won't bother you now, but when I turn it up in the mix, it's going to really bother you. But, uh, you know, it's it's over time things that are wrong, you know, the small little tiny little things, they may not matter. But if somebody is blatantly out of tune on mm-hmm. something, it's, it's usually pretty obvious to everybody on playback, and that's why we we do playback. It's, uh, and I don't like to do uh, playback right away. I'd rather get a couple of takes just in case... Right. You know, you have to steal something from one of the other takes, which eliminates that whole problem of uh, if, if you made a mistake in the first one, you didn't do it in the last one. I can just steal that and move it in. And uh, with computer technology now, it's very easy to edit like that. Right. So it cuts down on the amount of time it takes to make uh, a record now, uh, which is good because I don't want records to take a long time. I don't want to make money like that. If I'm getting by the hour, I'll never ever prolong a session just so I can make more money. Mm-hmm. I'd rather cut through it and get to it and then get it, move on to another project afterwards. The faster I can get it done, that it's, you know, without rushing it through, uh, the better the experience it is uh, for everyone. And how I mean, was- all of these records that we make, right? Cause I've done over 900 now. And it's like, I don't really listen to the records uh, that (laughs) I. If you're not
0: listening, who is? No, I'm just kidding.
1: No, but but I don't mean it that way. I mean, it's just that I'm always moving on to making another one. But I don't listen to them unless I hear them on a radio show or if I hear, you know, I hear, uh, you know, a jukebox or or, or played in a club over the top. There's many times I go, hey, I think I did this. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. but I don't listen to them because I've listened to them a hundred times. when I'm mixing them and working with them. So my job is to get it out the door, you know, onto mastering, and then it goes to manufacturing, and it's gone. And to me, when I look back, and when I hear it, if I do hear tracks that I've done, I remember the experience of what it was mm-hmm. to make it. Because to me, that is far more important in my, in my life and my memory to remember all the great fun things that happened during the making of the actual product, not necessarily the product itself. The product is for other people to listen to, not for me. So you know, it, it, you make you make these records. If you're making records for yourself, uh, I don't know if I could. I think that that's a healthy thing. I think you need to make them. You have for other. It's for the fans and and right. people that are that like it. I mean, you, you need to like it yourself, but, but to dwell on it uh, by listening to yourself over and over, I just think that it's time for the psychotherapist. You know, <laughs> it's like, like, it's just, you know, it's, it's amazing too that uh, one of the things in recording is if you do a, a really great take and everybody's bouncing off the walls with loving it, oh, I can't believe how great this is going, this is fantastic. And then the artist takes it home. You give them a quick mix of the song. They take it home. And after they've listened to it for a 100 times, they start looking at it through the, this uh, microscope. Mm-hmm. And they see all the things that are tiny little things that are wrong with it. So in other words, you didn't feel that way on the day. How can you go from that to, to like, oh, maybe we should change this. Or maybe I should sing it again. i going, you know. You know, this is you and you are have put yourself under the microscope that you're questioning yourself. It sounds like you. Get over it. <laughs> it's you. You know, it's like and it's something everybody should strive for is to sound like themselves.
0: Did you were you ever intimidated by any of the artists that you worked with?
1: Sorry you have to speak up.
0: Were you ever <laughs> intimidated by any of the <laughs> oh, artists?
1: Oh, intimidated. Oh that's a good one. Uh, no I th- I can't think of anybody. I think that I've seen some people mark their territories mm-hmm. uh, early in a recording because I probably don't know who they are and fully and they don't know who I am fully. Right. So and you know I've if I, I tend to joke a lot, but I, I've pulled back on that at first when I first meet someone because I think that takes time for people to understand your sense of humor um, when uh, when you first meet them, so you maybe pull back on that a little bit, you know, without losing yourself completely, but but that can, you know, but there are have been artists who have, you know, wanted to mark the territory as and who's the boss kind mm-hmm. of thing, but that just tells me in many ways that, well, there, this is going to be a learning experience for them as to who I am, but at the same time, I respect it because uh, this means that they know what they want and, and, uh, and they know who they are. So I don't really have a problem with that. I'd rather have someone be confident and know who they are than be constantly asking questions about who they are and what they should be doing. So I mean I I can be helpful in, in directing people when they uh maybe second on themselves or, or don't know what how they should do something. Yeah. I, I've got lots of answers for that. But the people but they actually are better at answering those questions themselves, you
0: know, most of the time. Uh, so in your vast cat vast history of the catalogue that you have that you've worked on? And it's probably not a fair question because they're probably all your babies and you love them all equally. But are there two or three albums that stand <laughs> out in your mind that you think, you know, that re- that represents who I am and, and the, the, the pride that I take in my work? Any okay. albums that come to mind? Well, this is... The,
1: <laughs> a lot of them stick out for me. I couldn't say two or three. but And... By naming them, I think it's like it would make all those other people feel bad, <laughs> all right, I yeah, uh, you know it's like when people on Facebook call themselves, and this is my best friend, I'm thinking, well, how do all your other friends feel? you know like <laughs> my bestie and it's really like
0: well not, you not, have to not, go not the that best far? thing, but the thing that you you kind of associate i mean that you're very proud of having worked on and and to say this really reflects. Yeah, okay, well, later. so I'm
1: going to give on it in on this. And, so, and this is just off the top of right. my Right,
0: and this doesn't mean the others are horrible. No,
1: exactly, not at all. <laughs> or less in any way. But no, but I mean, there was a certain, I, I would say like highlights, like, you know, obviously working with Jeff Healy was, mm-hmm. was you know, a, a highlight for me because, you know, he became like, you know, he used to call me his big brother. We became really close right. friends. and and uh, And I just... He was such an amazing player I mean like I just loved watching him laying stuff down uh, the re- the, those last couple of records we did together and uh, I like the jazz stuff too mm-hmm. but the last couple of albums that we did one was when he was alive which was mess of blues and then one was after he had passed away but they were all cuts that he had approved so I didn't I felt like you know uh, I felt like he was there. Mm-hmm. and uh so those two uh one of the moments in the, in that recording so I, sometimes it's just not necessarily the album like i said it's experience right. for me so um uh, was that because he had passed away uh i had this one track it was the opening track of the uh, the album uh, and and he was gone and i and i couldn't so he he actually coughs in one of the lines going to the bridge, and I go oh well, I'll just go to a, one of my you know hard drives I had I mean I've archived like endless amounts of like live recordings of Jeff right so I go looking for this uh, think I love you too much was the name of the song <laughs> I go looking for for it and uh, we never recorded it anywhere else I went to Norway I went to London England I was I'm I'm going like. The the club ones we did, it's not there. What am I gonna do? I can't for one line in a song. What am I gonna do? I said, "Not the hell with it. I'm gonna sing it myself." So I, I I put the I put the, nobody's gonna know, right? Because <laughs> I've always had a a bit of an act for being able to imitate people. It's it's a fun thing I do, even though I don't want to do that on my own albums. But but in a club situation, it's fun. So I thought, can I do Jeff? So. And it, so I set up the mic, and I'll tell you, it was very hard. Like I just kept punching in. I guess I'm gonna get you what you want. You know that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm going. Yeah. No, that doesn't sound like I'm, I gotta kill a bit more, and I gotta do a bit more of this in the timber and get things together. And about the fiftieth time, I just you know this is the spiritual part of me. I just looked up to the sky and I said, "Come on, man, help me out here. <laughs> this is killing me." And I. Uh, and then I sang, it. I sang the line, and I thought, "Wow, that sounds like Jeff." Like I actually zeroed in on it and got it. So, so I played it for Dave Murphy and Dan Ortemir when they were over. You know, they were in the band, and, and I played them the, the the spot, and they and they were going, "Where is it?" Like, and I said, "No, it's I'm singing that spot." And they and they they, they, they laughed. They said, "Nobody's ever going to know that hmm. you know, unless you tell them." So, I guess I let the cat out of the bag. <laughs> yes. But, but it, it that was a fun experience. So there, and uh, be, I think uh, um, recording uh, that Mississippi Wrecking Crew album, mm-hmm. and you were around for some of yeah. that. You know, that was at Liquid Toronto. It, we we were sitting with uh, the band was Mel Brown, Snooky Pryor, Bob Stroger, uh, Willie Big Eyes Smith, Pine Top Perkins on piano. I mean, like come on, like, I mean, this is like, these are like the elders of the blues, uh, and, and very unique characters, so recording them, and we got Jeff in on, Mm -hmm. on that record as well for a, for a few songs, I asked him if he wanted to do it, and he came in and did that, uh, that, that was a, a fabulous, uh, collection, uh, musicians like that knew how to play blues like they lived and breathed in, yeah, you know? sure. so they defined they, it they did and uh so that was great you know i had pine top uh perkins kept he ran into me he was kind of funny we had to try and keep pine top out in the in the uh, in the studio space because he was chain smoking those little cigars the cigarellos that he's had and and I uh, had Mel Brown who, you know, had the machine on and he had the emphysema, so we had to keep them apart. And Mel's going, I can smell those things from in here just like and Pine Top was just he'd come in occasionally and he would he was going around picking up little pieces of fluff on my floor of my carpet and putting it next to me as I'm at the mixer board. i am looking around going, Pine Top Perkins is putting fluff on the uh, what's he he's trying to tell me to vacuum the place or something? I don't know, whatever. I'm I'm working here, Pine Top. Get away from me. But uh, it, that was a lot of fun, and uh, and when Jeff came in, the funny thing that happened was Snooky Pryor. He was in his eighties at the time, I think, around eighty. Mm-hmm. And Jeff, you know, was you know still young, and he came in and he played. Uh, you know, he got on the floor and played. And after he left, uh, Snooky, you know, is talking with Andrew Galloway, and Snooky says, you know, I think it's nice of you, Andrew, to bring that young man in here, and it'll probably help his career some, (laughs) and uh, and of course, Andrew's going, uh, well, you know, actually, Snuggie, like, you know, he's quite famous, like, he's, you know, he's, like, he's done quite well, he's been nominated for Grammy, and Snuggie's going, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, sure, (laughs) and he even drove past Jeff's club, you know, on the way to the hotel, (laughs) one of the days later, and 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 Andrew goes, Look, see that Jeff Heeley's Club. That's that that's that uh kid that we had on your on your uh recording and Snuggie's like going, Yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> it's like he just wouldn't he wouldn't have anything to do with it. So yeah, I mean, like I said, the experiences are fun. I you know, I, I like doing the Fraser Daily stuff here, uh, because Mike and I we get things done so quickly, like we're like we're doing it live off the floor. Even the energy is all, like this. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. You know, mm-hmm. and, and and we bang them off in one or two takes, and uh, so those are always fun to make because there's so little work involved in it. And uh, not if, that you don't like working. No, I like working. I'm just saying, like I want it to flow. I don't. I don't. I don't want any. Uh, I don't want to be held back because. Over the smallest things, you know? like uh, It's not that I don't have patience for it. I don't have the patience for it. It's it's that uh, the best albums I've made have just moved quickly. It's Mm -hmm. like the best songs that you write come quickly, uh, or at least the ones that I have. And that, um, it's just a personal thing. Everybody's different. I mean, it can be completely different for anybody else. They may completely disagree with me. You know, and in the recording thing, like when the Pet Sounds and uh, I didn't pop that P there, did I? I didn't hear okay, it. good. Uh, Pet Sounds and and Sergeant Pepper's when that that came along, you know the overdubbing thing went absolutely crazy, and it's never really fully recovered mm-hmm. uh, from people making records like that because it's like all of a sudden we're all artists now. We 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 paint our pe- you know they've got this. This beautiful uh, painting, where you know, you're painting your masterpiece kind of thing. Whereas before that, a lot of it was just let's just we know what we're doing. Let's just get up and play. So it's a different art form, in many ways, and uh, it's nice to see, like you know, the Rolling Stones coming out with an album that just goes right back to the mm-hmm. basic thing. And uh, I think the blues envelope, you know, if I could say that, uh, in the blues world, the blues envelope has been pushed so far now it's practically right off the table onto the floor like it, it's not that what what made blues you know uh, in the you know the 40s and 50s um and, be, and before was uh great musicianship and and, and good performance you know the, the recordings might not sound great but but uh it, in the in the the blues world now there's there's bands who have needed to take it further because you know they're Uh, you can't we're not all sharecroppers and we're not all living in you know in chicago and mississippi Mm -hmm. and and writing about those things like so you have to take it further and and the music itself has changed it's become uh you know a lot less traditional right so so and there's nothing really wrong with that it's just the progression of the music but it's nice to see someone take it back to who is uh, famous like that mm-hmm. and go, "Hey, this is where we our career started. Here's an album that sounds just like our first album, you know, only better quality." And uh, you know, I think that if Muddy Muddy Waters and people like that were alive today, they'd be using the technology that we have now. They would they would never be staying trying to sound old. Mm-hmm. They would they would they would sound old in their playing, I imagine, but. Uh, but they would use the technology that we have, whether it be you know a digital or whatever. They, uh, it's just what they would do. It wouldn't be that important to them. So you know, being you know, it's just the way I see it. I think you know, I met Muddy, you know, so I, I got a sense that he was just all about yeah, let's the same thing, move forward, and uh, use what you
0: got. I'm sure. Well, Alec, I, like, I want to thank you for this time. I really. I've, I've worked with you I've been in your studio many many times but we haven't really chatted for long so well, I hope awesome. I was nice to you you were very nice to me thank yeah. you very much but thank you for doing this I really yeah appreciate well it.
1: thanks a lot Marco I appreciate being on the show Great. and thanks. I'm honoured that you asked me well
0: my pleasure mm-hmm. all right